Hi, my name is Tony, but folks call me the Caveman. I am a student of nature. My mission is an endless pursuit of wisdom. I seek to better understand our connection with nature through my basic tenets. Eat, sleep, think, move, create, be, in nature. This podcast is an exploration into these tenets and their harmony with three fundamentals of life, our mind, our body, and our earth. My goal is to interview people that can help explain this connection and shed light on our humanity. Join me on this journey of love, laughter, and nonsense. Together we shall learn, so that we may improve ourselves and the lives of those around us. Welcome to Chatting with Caveman. And we're here, we're in Andalusia, technically. Pleasant home community near Andalusia, Alabama. All right, yeah. Alabama. Uh-huh. And I'm here with Mark, who is a forestry teacher and expert, would it be fair to say that? Uh, yeah. And we're, we're at his place, surrounded by mushroom, what do you call it, a garden, or is there a proper word for it? At mushroom garden, mushroom yard. Uh, yeah. That's produced they're, there. They're everywhere. We're going to be talking about all the different strains he grows, mm-hmm. um, how you do that, who's buying them, what they're good for, and probably just your whole story. Sure. Since I know almost nothing about them, we get to, to dive right in. Uh, well, how did you get started in agriculture? I grew up um, as the sixth generation on our farm, family farm up in North Missouri. Okay. Um, my third great-grandpa settled it on the leading edge of Europeans coming into that area. He was actually, uh, they, they traced it back neighbors with Daniel Boone. And, really? Yeah, and uh, they both picked up and at the same time said, there's too many people, I guess, in Kentucky, and they moved up to Missouri and settled about 40 miles apart. That would and, have been mid-1800s? Yeah, and so we, our farm has been continuously in uh, the family since uh, okay. early, early 1800s. Yeah, early so it goes back a while. Yeah. yeah. Were you born up there? I was born... Okay. Uh, there in Marceline, Missouri, and I went to uh, graduated high school, went to the University of Missouri, got a bachelor's in, in uh, forestry uh-huh. management, and then decided to go ahead and get a master's, which led me to Auburn University, and I studied longleaf pine. Okay. And uh, then I worked 20 years in uh, forestry research and education, extension, teaching, all that, and uh, um, did some crazy stuff down on the U.S.-Mexico border, came back and took my current job teaching uh, forest technology at LBW Community College in Andalusia. Okay. Uh, yeah, the crazy stuff, it was when you hiked the the whole border? Yeah. I, yeah. I was 20 years a research associate with Auburn University School of Forestry mm-hmm. and Wildlife Sciences. I was an expert in longleaf pine, and I reached this kind of breaking point in uh, 2014 where I said I just 
I couldn't be where I was. You know, yeah. And I, so I got this idea that I'd walk the, the Texas-Mexico border. Okay. And uh, so I went, I re resigned and went to the El Paso and walked to the Gulf of Mexico. I walked 1,000 miles over seven weeks. Yeah. And uh, came back, started teaching, and then decided I, that it was such an addictive experience that uh, I decided I wanted to go back and become the first person in history to walk the entire U.S.-Mexico border. So I went and finished it out over okay. a year. Is there a undefined trail? Are there uh, markers along the way? Are you using a map and a compass? It was a bit of everything. There was, uh, there's, well, there's no trail. I mean, people don't do what I did. Yeah. Uh, I, and, uh, I mean, I think, for example, if you don't count undocumented immigrants and drug runners, I think I saw right. two people walking the first thousand miles I walked from El Paso to the Gulf of Mexico. So there's, people don't aren't out there. Do you have an idea how much is private versus well, public I land? would I would walk the trail or the road that was closest to the border. I got you. And but some of those were they basically disused. That you you literally couldn't get a vehicle down them anymore. Sure. So, but you could generally kind of tell. Sometimes I got lost one time yeah. uh, because you get went from the community of Lobo, Texas, to Candelaria with 60 miles, and and it was pretty much all blown out. Even the border patrol didn't go down there. But it, so it was too just dense, a, or just it was uh, the road. If they can't drive to it, they don't go there. Oh, okay, okay. So they they ain't gonna walk up yeah, into no. the mountains to look for someone. They're going right. to wait for them to come out. Right. And so that they left that section to pretty much... Okay. You know, the, the so day. you're doing um, yeah. just like uh, MRE rations in a tent and a water bottle and filter. Yeah. And mm -hmm. yeah. did you know that there would be <clears throat> water along the way or... I was hoping. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I was pretty... You're pretty very savvy with... Shape, yeah. And I knew I could carry... Essentially, I could make it two days without resupply. So, um, and but I did. That was too much on that section. I did have to. I did find some areas I had to siphon and, and clean yeah. the water and stuff like that. Yeah. Did you have a sat phone with you, or it was just man against elements? Yeah. I kind of. I just. I felt like. Uh, You'd find that, it. that was kind of cheating to me in a way. To sure. Have that. So I just said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in this side and. And hopefully I'll come out the other side on those remote sections like that. What was the biggest impetus for going to do that in the first place? Well, the, that, that being in the job I was in, I was in tremendous demand because of my knowledge on how to do certain things with longleaf pine. I was a leading expert on how to get that tree growing out there. And, and the phone calls and letters and emails were just just piled on top of each other yeah and uh, I felt like I, I was losing my mind I couldn't mm -hmm. even concentrate anymore and when I decided I, I thought maybe I might do this walk to Mexico uh, Texas Mexico border yeah I looked at cell phone coverage and it's just a giant hole out there so I I mean there was hundreds of miles that I walked it there was there was no cell phone coverage at all and I, I like that I could it was just me and I could start putting my mind and thoughts sure. back together sure yeah. Were there any moments where it was like, oh, this is not what I thought. This is not what I wanted. Like, I want to get out, or was it like, I can't wait to just keep blazing on? I mean, there, there were times I 
I thought of, I could, it was very quite possible I was going to die. But, okay, but, well, I would say that would be getting close to the limit. But uh, From but, heat or dehydration? From the elements mainly. Yeah. I mean, uh, I had uh, my uh, my one um, No Country for Old Men moment yeah. when I yeah. walked into a big drug transfer. That I thought that was... Just stumbled into it? Yeah. Basically. How did they respond? They, they decided to let me go, basically, because <laughs> they... They have this calculus that they're going to lose a certain amount of the stuff. Sure. And if they don't kill someone, then they don't bring too much heat down. Oh. So it was, I didn't say anything. I didn't, I, I was the slowest moving, most easily identifiable person on the border. So if they, if I had caused them to lose that load, they might have, you know, got been pissing off. Yeah. To come after me. So I just didn't say anything. They let me go and, uh. I assume their stuff went through, and I went through. <laughs> How long did that interaction uh, take place? It was just just a very short period of time. Yeah. it all happened at once. Yeah. But uh, but they would they they were watching me, uh, especially like when I got over in the Coronado National Forest and stuff. They they have lookouts on every mountain on the Mexico side, so they can tell when the border patrol and whoever's coming through and then they can so okay. they, they knew who i was and yeah and, and uh, they sent drones over me and stuff like this that. is the presumably the cartels or I something of that nature yeah. so you just pose no threat i i and i made that obvious <laughs> <laughs> just, just a man yeah. on his own mission yeah. um I am. I am quite. I don't want to jump away from yeah. the trip, but I am really curious to learn about longleaf yeah. pines. Like, uh, so you were highly sought after on the business side, the production side for paper or timber companies to try to enhance their growth, or give us, school us on longleaf pines, why we use them, why some people don't like them, yeah. and what it means with, I don't know, the forestry technology side of things. Yeah. Well. Um it's estimated that there was 92 million acres of longleaf pine when the first European settlers arrived. Okay. They, it went from southeast Virginia down Atlantic coast, mm -hmm. Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas. So nine states was the range of longleaf pine. And, it, and by the mid-1990s, that had been decreased to less than 3 million acres of longleaf. So it's one of the most diminished forest types in North America. Yeah, it's 95% gone. And, and uh, they decided to form an organization within the School of Forestry and Life Sciences at Auburn to promote the restoration of longleaf. There was a lot of people outside of there, but nobody was doing anything. And finally, Rhett Johnson, who director of a 5,300-acre Auburn forest near here. Okay. That's where I was based out of, and they gotcha. decided to base the organization. And Dean Jerstad, the professor of uh, civil culture at Auburn, uh -huh. they, they founded it. They hired me as the first employee, and we started building an organization to teach people why the longleaf was important ecologically and economically mm -hmm. and okay. how to do that. And then, so my job was to figure out at the first, why aren't people restoring longleaf? And then what information is out there that we can address these, these issues. And it was, the problem was forest industry had cut longleaf when it came in because it was the most pretty valuable tree. Gotcha. But they were they were into pulp and paper and gotcha. pulp and paper you want these trees that you see right here which is loblolly yes this, this was on the property when i bought it right now i'm cutting them and put them back to longleaf but right but it they could plant it they could grow it very quick 
for low quality wood that didn't bother them because they were making pulp and paper and that was the economic model so they forced industry wasn't doing much with Fung because it was a longer term rotation that didn't fit their model and then that model started falling apart okay forest industry started selling that land people with money started buying it and a lot of them wanted a attractive property that they could hunt deer and turkey and quail yeah. on and, and maybe grow some valuable timber longleaf meet, meets those objectives much better but okay. it's a tougher tree to plant and get it successfully growing and that was a lot of the, my first decade was just how do you get this tree to survive and grow and there, people knew a lot of the elements my job was to bring that all together and then get the information out there. So does the quality, what's the main determinant factor on quality wood, the density of it or? Yeah, well the, a guy named Wallenberg did a book on Longleaf back in the 1946, a monograph of Longleaf. He called it the world's most valuable tree. Really? It, it, Longleaf tended to be grown in very high numbers per acre so that it, it grew up very tall and straight with few limbs. Okay. Limbs decrease the um, the strength of the of a board. Sure. You got a lot of knots in there. Uh, it tended to have a high specific gravity. Okay. So it was very dense. It was very strong, and uh, it uh, it generally over time it would impregnate the heart of that tree with resin and became very hard, uh, 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 rot resistant, termite okay. resistant. There's a there were stumps on this property when I bought it that were probably cut. Trees were probably cut 80 years ago, waist high with two guys with the crosscut saw. Yeah. Solid as a rock. That was Longleaf. If I cut that lobby, right, that stump will be uh, completely eaten by, by termites within two years. It'll be gone. Okay. So that's that's the difference in the wood. Yeah. They're in the same family or same genus, genus same or genus Pinus. Okay. And very closely related. There's. There's four southern pines that are sold for southern yellow pine lumbers, loblaws, slash, shortleaf, and longleaf. And they can all make good quality or poor quality depending upon how you, you grow those trees. How much of that is dependent on man's input on it versus just the environment in which it's started? Well, the, um, what man has done is genetically selected loblolly to be to grow straighter and have fewer limbs, and, okay. they, and they're, they're making it grow more like longleaf and produce better quality. So you, we see some of that. <laughs> this is Dylan wandering into the photo. He's gonna be in and out as we're doing this, but uh, uh, they figured out how to make loblaw grow better, be more resi disease resistant. And there's a tree right over here with a big old knot on it. It's called yep. fusiform rust. That's very natural loblaw gets a lot of that longleaf generally doesn't get that so that's nature gives longleaf uh, some legs up okay and, and, and forest industry has been breeding loblaw to be more like longleaf is there beyond just the the economical side of why you would prefer the longleaf mm -hmm. or the loblaw mm -hmm. is, is there some sort of harmonious natural integrative reason why we would want to grow a percent of this or yeah, that there is and if you look see that tree with yep. the fuse forms dead see there's more dead ones over there right that loblaw is very susceptible to more insects and disease than is longleaf the reason longleaf covered the southeast is yeah. because it was the tree that was most resistant to everything that kills the southern mm. pines fire insect disease wind is went more wind firm Right. right. So, and these, this is what 
you might call ruderal species. If there's a big disturbance, it jumps in there real quick and grows. So yeah. it, it's that again, that works well with the pulp and paper short rotation and all that. Sure. But if these had been longleaf, those trees probably wouldn't be dead. They wouldn't have died from it's probably uh a root rot disease, an some root rot on this soils, and Loblaw is very susceptible to it. Yeah. Again, that was what was planted here when I bought the property, but yeah. I'm going to try to get it back to Longleaf so my trees won't be dying, so like that. Right. Uh, and that's its maximum lifespan is about a century on a Loblaw. There, there's a Longleaf in Southern Pines, North Carolina, that's 460 years old and still growing. They can grow for just virtually ever. And what? At that age, how big are they? Yeah, they're all oh, they're thirty plus inches in diameter. They're not they're not, it's not you as know, big as I would think for for four centuries. No, they when they after you hit a hundred and fifty two hundred yeah. years, you know, those rings are tight, tight, yeah. tight. There's uh, it's taken them it's taken them fifty years sometimes to put on one inch of diameter. So they're wow. they're just. And that makes incredible quality wood. Sure. But, uh, sure. but economically, you know, forest industry says, well, I can't. And they can't grow a tree for 400 years yeah. before they cut it. The business model ain't uh, going to work out so uh, well. Uh, uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, is there a formal name for the study of tree rings? Dendrochronology. And are you yeah. a dendrochronologist? Yeah, I've got, a, I've got a friend with a PhD in dendrochronology. What's really cool about that? is you, that you can go to that tree and you can, if you was to cut it down or take a core out of it, we can right. do this while it's still alive, right. with an increment bore, you can go and then you can, you can look at climate. And then you can see there's certain patterns that you show where this year's a drought year, this year's real wet. And then you find a tree at the bottom of a lake that died 100 years ago, but yeah. several hundred years ago, you can match it up. And they've been able to do this with tree after tree and okay. go back thousands of years and they can actually know exactly what year it is and what the weather was like by studying tree rings. That's fascinating. Yeah. They're talking to us. We just gotta, we gotta learn to listen to them, I That's guess. Right. Yeah. What has been your biggest takeaway in forestry over the years as you've studied it and taught it? Like, what's the biggest thing you've extracted the earth telling you, so to speak? Uh, well, I get frustrated with the industry because it basically came into the southeast and tried to convert everything to one big loblaw plantation. They were planting over a billion loblaw annually. There's, you know, I teach dendrology here in Covenant County, Alabama, and I'll teach my students 120 different trees, and they're going to in a typical forestry scenario, they're gonna kill 119 of them and, and try to get it all into Loblaw. So it set us up for a lot of risk. There's We're losing millions of acres of trees to pine beetle, southern pine and ips yeah. beetle. Uh, ips is really running rampant, killing my ips trees. Ips is a um, bark disease beetle. or bark beetle, okay. Yeah. And, uh, so, and so I, I wish we would, uh, they get too focused on just growing uh, for volume production. How much wood can I grow right. in a short right. period of time? And it sets us up. It's really, that's a terrible thing to do to the, the ecosystem, to the, to the animals and the insects yeah. over there, out there. So my big thing is, is teaching people to appreciate 
all the stuff on the ground and mid-story and the different species and, and, and all the things that we can get from this forest that we lose if we do if we get rid of it and just plant loblolly pine. So right. I, my job was literally helping those people who bought forest industry land and get it back into the native, natural, diverse forest. And they were people that bought it not necessarily just to maximize their wood output? Oh, none of them were oh, buying it for that. They were conservationists Most, more? Oh, in many cases, they were wealthy people who wanted a place for recreation. Yeah. And if they grew some wood to help cover taxes and all that, sure. great. But uh, the main thing I want is bucks and deer yeah. and, and quail. A and naturally diverse ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So, and Longleaf really matches yeah. well with those objectives. Um, I, I don't. I might be incorrect here, but so I'm from out out west, mm -hmm. where there's certainly a lot more um, of a combative nature between the logging industry mm -hmm. and those yeah. when it, when it comes to forest fires yeah, sure. mm -hmm. and trying to determine. And I, I read the book. Is it on Fires Ridge? The one with the the firefighters that died in Arizona or whatever. Um, oh, the, the, on, grand, on, the hot shot, Grand Mountain hot shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it went briefly yeah. into the history of it, and I got a little lost because it sounded like the the initial like official standpoint nationally was to cut or the opposite, and then it's kind of changed. But maybe you could tell us what you know the the attitude is towards logging or conservation, at least from what the government is saying versus what the industry is saying versus what you think is just like what we we should be doing is that great what you can't this, hear it's really loud oh dylan dylan can come here come here come here for a second can i see your your can is i it, see this come here he lost his yeah i you, think you, you, i think it you, you did a job on spider <laughs> I, I just don't want it to be distracting from that information yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so okay yeah. Let's have a seat here. So, okay, so the industry versus the... Uh, what do you, can you help set us straight on, on mm -hmm. logging in terms of the best health for the forest versus mm -hmm. thinning for, you know, to prevent fires? Because I feel like there are very mm -hmm. uh, opposing camps with that. Yeah. Well, the longleaf... Without fire, there wouldn't have been a lonely forest. I mean, it, okay. the, the reason the lonely, I, I said the reason was there is to survive what kills other trees. And, and the, uh, the fire ecologists, the people who could, you can go back and look at tree rings and, and, and determine yeah. how frequently fire came through. And you can look at, there's ways of guesstimating. Sure. And this probably burned about on an average of every three years oh. around here. Maybe a little bit less before the, the Native Americans showed up, but they increased the frequency of fire. Huh. They burned for the same reason that I would burn today. I'm, I'm a certified prescribed burn manager. Okay. They burned because it kept the hardwoods and shrubs down, and so it gave you an open park-like forest that favors a lot of undergrowth, which the deer and the turkey and the quail gotcha. utilize. That, those were important protein sources. With an open forest, Maybe if you had a hostile tribe somewhere else, you could see them coming a long ways away. Right. You don't want them to get 10 feet away from you in, right. a, in the thick forest before you see them. One of the biggest things that fire does down here is I worked 
for 20 years based out of the Solon Dixon Center, 5,300-acre forest mm -hmm. in Covington and Escambia County, Alabama, is that I could spend a year out in that forest, three or four days out of the week when I wasn't out traveling and talking, right, and and get one tick a year, all right, in the forest, and no chiggers on a, in a typical year. That's a good year. That's a good year. <laughs> That's because of fire, right? So okay, just. 40 miles from here, we did we do we did a biennial conference every two years with the Longleaf Alliance. We did one a guy named um, that put together Ngozi Plantation. His name was M.C. Davis. He bought yeah. with his own money. I think it was oh gosh, it was tens of thousands of acres. Yeah, and was putting it back to Longleaf. And he bought this big section that hadn't been burned for decades. And we said we was going to do a regional conference. We could visit it. And we did we did. We spent three hours out there looking around to figure out what all he had, and we came back just covered in ticks and chiggers. Well, you can't take 300 conference attendees and, and no. cover them with ticks and chiggers. There was no fire. That was that was the only difference between hmm. that property 40 miles away and the Dixon Center. So the Native Americans learned. I mean, you don't want to be you want to you don't want them ticks and yeah. chiggers if you can get rid of them and you can promote deer, turkey, and quail. Basically, you're you that. What that gives you is a reason, uh, a health reason, to keep fire in the forest. Gotcha. Literally, in my profession, over half the people by my age have had a serious tick disease, Lyme disease and all this. But that's not working on fire-maintained forests. That's in forests that are fire-excluded, and you start getting 10, 100, 1,000 times the amount of ticks. You get start getting a lot more of that disease. So okay. for health reasons... We we would we I would love to see fire being applied much more much more liberally across southeast, and so the in general the feds are down with that. Gotcha. You're seeing a lot of fire on the Conecuh National Forest here. You're seeing it on the Blackwater State Forest. And these are intentional prescribed burns. Prescribed burns, and they're and they're going to aim for that historical interval of about once every three years. Right Forest wow. industry is, industry is not going to do that because. If that fire gets away from you, you're liable. And if you're yeah. a big company and you got a lot of money, you're, there's a good chance they're going to take a lot of it. So that just happened down okay. here um, near uh, near Milton, Florida. Unfortunately, fire got away. A fire got away from a guy who's, who's doing what needed to be doing to prescribe burn, and it jumped out in a few days, burned up x many houses, and. He's, he's going to lose everything he, he had. So there's real risk associated with that. Yeah, I, yeah. I teach. Not supposed I teach to play it. with fire. <laughs> I mean, I teach fire. I teach yeah. I help people to get certified. And uh, I love it. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a scary thing, you know. And if you, if you do, don't how burn, How do you, you know, control fire? Well, how do you? Yeah. Well, they, that's, you literally, <laughs> you literally like take spiritual question. intense, intense <laughs> classes. You learn all about everything that affects fire, the humidity, the wind direction, the aspect. A south-facing aspect with in, north, in the northern hemisphere is going to get a lot more sun, and it's going to be a lot drier, and yeah. it's going to burn. The fire runs much quicker uphill than it does downhill. Right. If right. you have fuel, like what we have right here, this creates what we call ladder fuels. This allows fire to move from the forest floor into the canopy. You learn how to describe and, and quantify and qualify all the fuels at, that are out there and how the environment affects it, the temperature, the humidity, the wind direction. And then you, you have to generally call in and get a permit. 
Sure. And and then you have to light the fire based upon if it's a north wind. I want a I want a and I want a backing fire. I'll set it on the south end of what I'm burning and allow it to back into it. If I want it to move through quick, that's called a head fire. I would go to the north end, but yeah. I better have a big area on the southern side where it's not going to jump. You know, sure. So that that's again, you just take courses and courses, and you and you learn to experience, and and. Uh, and then you have backup plans. You have dozers, and you have okay. the, the number of the forestry commission. And it gets away, and call yeah. them up. Uh, but but it's, it's scary stuff. It is, but it's exciting. I've I've been on many many burns, and yeah, um, and I'll be on many more. But it's uh, there's risk associated with it. Yeah. Do people hire you per acre? Is, is that how? Yeah. Yeah. They uh, now I. I have not charged anyone for burning. I volunteer mm. uh, with friends, and because of my courses, because I teach fire, yeah. we don't charge for that. We just, all we ask for them to do is to replace the the fuel that we use the, uh, for the fire. But uh, but I have friends who who do. That's what they do. Um, one of the, the best known prescribed burners in Alabama. He'll he's burned a thousand acres in a day. Intentionally, just him, just him. Well, with the crew, yeah. And uh, and it, those good days, you know, he's making ten, ten plus thousand dollars a day. So it, there's money bad. in it, but there's also tremendous risks with it. Yeah. But generally speaking, you're you would advocate using fire as some sort of natural cleansing element for the, the habitat. The longleaf, without fire, this fuel builds up. Yeah. All right, and. And it gets thicker and thicker, and that you start losing all of your herbaceous layer. Okay. And the herbaceous layer is what drives the diversity in our ecosystems here. That's where all the the insects are in, are adapted to, it. and all the birds and the, and the frogs and the salamanders and the lizards eat them. It all starts going away without fire. It converts to something completely different. And, okay. Uh, so the the herb the bot, I'm, I've had a lot of my degree was in studying the plants of the native longleaf ecosystem. And in one square meter yeah. of longleaf forest, we could have over 50 plant species. Right? Wow. Now, this is not burned. Yeah. All right. And and we, we've got one plant species in a square meter right here. All right. So this is where my mushroom logs. I'm not restoring longleaf here, but on the rest of my property, yeah. I am. I'm, I'm trying to get the fire back and, and, and get it going again. Well, cool. And I think that'd be a good segue into mushrooms. Let's just let's just jump. I don't even know the first thing to ask you besides like, mm -hmm. what's growing? Why does it like to grow where it is? Mm -hmm. uh, how long does it take? Why did you even get into mushrooms? Okay. So, I mentioned I grew up six generation of family farm, yep. and, and in the mid '80s, I watched probably half the farms in our county go bankrupt. Mm. Commodity farmers and yeah. growing corn, soybean cattle, pigs, and all that, That's which is what we had, a, a, a kind of diversified, small 400-acre farm. Okay. And, uh, so I said, that, that, you know, that pretty much sucks. I don't want to do that. Uh, so I went to forestry. I found out you could get a degree and allow me to be outside. And, yeah. And, and I made a, I've made a good career out of it. A year from now, I'm, I'm eligible for retirement. Uh, okay. For that. And okay. so I'm so thinking ahead, what am I going to do? Well, I don't want to go back and go corn and soybeans but I said what can I do out here that uh, would be my niche mm -hmm. and uh, a friend of mine <clears throat> Carol Denhoff up in 
Atlanta sent me a notice that they were doing a mushroom inoculation class. Yeah. And I wasn't able to go to it, but I started researching it and I started watching videos on YouTube sure. and reading tutorials. God and, bless the internet. And uh, yeah, you can, there's so much out there today, but I, I knew the trees uh, and I had decades of foraging experience going out and picking wild mushrooms. Sure. And then I think it was probably about seven years ago, I just, I started uh, to, to do the inoculation. Started with the shiitake and the oysters and, and lions, many of that stuff. And, and I've just been expanding on that to where now I'm doing about a, a thousand logs annually and uh, growing about 15 strains and species of mushrooms. Wild forage, probably another two dozen species out yeah. of the woods. And, and I've built up a, big, a really good clientele in Pensacola many many customers mm -hmm. individuals and, and restaurants that now that and chefs that come to buy from me and so that's my idea is that when i retire this time next year i'll be retired and uh just i did the i'll do the mushrooms i do the lumber i do grilling smoking woods i grew vegetables but uh i think the the mushrooms will be uh one of the major focuses yeah yeah so tell me when it comes to the strains are you getting wildly different um, taste textures. Oh yeah. How do how do we end up grading mushrooms in terms of the mm -hmm. the culinary aspect? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the um, well, there's okay. So the the big boy in mushroom production is shiitake. Okay. Oysters is coming in, probably not too far behind that. Uh, and then so, but there's lots of different strains. Mm -hmm within that species of, of shiitake. It's just one species, but some come at more warmer conditions and yep. some in the middle of the winter and they have different shapes. And, and to me, there's not a big difference in, in taste. Uh, but then the oysters, there are several species and uh, they do the same thing. They prefer different woods, okay. uh, depending upon the species or the strain. And they come at different times of the year. So we have I showed you some golden oysters right over yeah. there from South America. They come in the heat of the summer. That's a really tough time of the year to grow uh, a mushroom. Those were transplanted here. Yeah, somebody then? brought somebody brought the the mycelia up. Okay. And uh, and and started introducing. Now it's it's naturalized, so that it's actually uh, people are finding it in the wild in the Midwest. And that's not a bad thing too, because it's these are all these are what we call saprophytic, they eat dead wood. They don't kill the trees. So they're not like an invasive species. They, they could be invasive in okay. that they're not native and they're going out into the woods, but they're only eating stuff that's already dead. Okay. So it's hard to imagine that being too much of a, of a threat to them. We haven't noticed that, or you haven't noticed that per se, with mushrooms just taking over, so to speak. No, 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 no. And... Uh, Upsetting no. the apple cart. Oh, the... well, I have, yes, with yeah. not ones that we brought in intentionally, but the example would be the, uh, the, there's a mushroom that causes the chestnut blight, wiped out the other tree that was the yeah. dominant of the Appalachian. Yeah, whole I range did read about chestnut. that. So that was, a, that was an invasive species. There are ones that come in like that uh, that that just decimate our forest, but we're not using those for food production. And generally they come in accidentally is okay. what happens. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> what is it that they love about trees? Right. Well, oh. Why is that their, you know? Yeah, it's their, 
basically it's their their food and their home the the mushroom that we see is just the fruiting body the organis yeah. organism is actually what we call mycelia it's 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 inside the organism and all the the mushroom that we eat that's like an apple on an apple tree that's just a fruiting body okay but the organism itself is in the soil it's in the wood when when wood rots that, that's because there's a mushroom in it it's consuming that that tree and okay. some of those rotting saprophytic mushrooms produce really good eating mushrooms will a mushroom that thrives on a tree not grow in soil and vice versa the there are there are ones that do both okay there are ones that only do one there there are some of these mushrooms that i can only grow on one or two species of wood and other ones that are generalist and grow in multiple species of wood but last year an example you know the largest organism in the world is called the honey mushroom it's a species of armillaria out west and there's one organism that's in the soil that covers several hundred acres, but it's all, it's actually one organism that's all tied together by the mycelia in the soil. And it is, now it does kill trees, it attacks yeah. them. So last year, that one of the honey mushrooms, I'm inoculating here to grow shiitake and oysters, but it literally moved through all the soil underneath there and started coming up in, in fruiting, fruiting bodies all over my logs. What does that my, mycelia, mycelium yeah. look like underneath? Am I picturing roots or yeah, like a real fibrous? Yeah, fine white lines, you know, microscopically yeah. thick, thin. But, huh. but when I open these totems up, on a totem right over there, see all that white on the outside? That yeah. was mycelia. That was the mushroom. That oh. was it. that was it. Except the stuff that looks on. like paint. Yeah, and so that is inside the wood too. But but when I put that plastic bag over it, the mycelia grows on the outside until I open it up. And okay. Then, and then it, it pretty much that outside mycelia doesn't like to be exposed to the sun and environment. But that's that's inside the wood continues to grow, and then some environmental trigger. Uh, low low night temperatures or rain will cause it to say, okay, it's time to fruit and put out my spores. So what is the predator to the mushroom then? If the, most of the organism, I guess, is is in the, the, the totem or the tree itself, mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what what is going to cause the mushrooms to disappear then? Uh, they, when they've used up whatever um, portion of that wood, when they've consumed it to the point they, some, most of these that I grow, it only works if I cut the tree and they get my mushroom in there very quickly. Because if you don't, you know, we're breathing in spores of mushrooms right here. They, they're, they're all around us. They're on our skin, they're in the air. Sure. And so when you kill a tree, you've got a really limited time span before some mushroom starts consuming that tree. My goal is to beat the wild mushrooms with my mycelia, cut the tree, put it in there, let it colonize it. So, okay. but it's, but the, and the shiitake will keep consuming these mushroom totems until they fall completely apart. So I'm, I'm five years later, I'm still getting shiitake off a, off a totem. Whereas almost all my oyster strains, Whatever they like in the wood, it's only there for about a year, and then they—that's it. Maybe two years on my on my golden oysters, and then they—they're done. But the other wild mushrooms will start showing up on that wood, taking over where they left off and consuming that wood. So I'll get a, there'll be I'll start getting woodier. I'll start getting 
turkey tail. I start getting one called a fairy ink cap I saw earlier over here, which is, and some of those are good edibles too. Yeah? Yeah. Do you like just picking them and eating them raw? Mostly not. I had a, I attended a really <laughs> good presentation uh, back in February from one of the leading experts in the country. And uh, the what makes the mushroom cell wall is uh, the same, it's called chitin. It's the same thing that makes an exos, exoskeleton of a shrimp or a lobster, right? Chitin. Chitin, C-H-I-T-I-N. Okay. And it's, it's mostly indigestible to us. Gotcha. So if we eat them raw, we're gonna get we're gonna get stomach ache for most of these. But if we cook it, it breaks the chitin down and makes it digestible for us. Um. Now, even even the 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 ones you buy in a store, the button mushrooms have yeah. it in it, but just in very low amounts. But if you sit down and ate a pound of that, you're probably gonna get sick to the stomach. Really? Yeah, from the chitin. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And that's pretty much in all mushrooms. In all mushrooms. But yeah. when mm -hmm. when a mushroom is considered poisonous, is it just Elevated levels of chitin. No, or something no, else? That, that's 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 different chemical compounds. And, okay. And uh, and there, I mean, there's a bunch of species. They're still they're still describing mushroom species out here, and there's that, that's a that's a whole like, world that I can't really explain to you. <laughs> but uh, that there's some there is some bad chemical compounds. Yeah. There, yeah. Which I'm just thinking that naturally that was its defense mechanism. Yeah. There's but makes me wonder why the other ones don't have it or what the other defense mechanisms of mushrooms are. Well, some of them want to be eaten because uh, whatever eats reverse it is, mushroom gonna, is psychology. going to spread the spores the sure. way they want them spread. See. So is the inoculation, is that an asexual reproduction? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm using mycelia. So picture mold on a piece of bread. Mm. All right. If you take that mm -hmm. and put it over on another piece of bread, it spreads. Okay, that's bread it's all. Spread. It's actually one. Again, it's it's just one organism that yeah. would eventually consume that whole loaf of bread. But that would be asexual. If the spores go from that and float over and, and, and meet and join and do all this stuff, I forget exactly how that works. Sure, that's, that's sexual. But we're using asexual. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now I don't use spores. I use mycelia. Gotcha. Yeah. And. Um, from typical inoculation to harvest is how long? Depends on the strain. So the golden oysters, uh, I think we'll probably take a look at them here in a minute. Yeah. That uh, I can get those within a few months. Okay. Maybe I'm, I'm say six months or so. I can generally have pretty decent production on those. Lion's mane might take me and Nemeco for sure Nemeco is one that Haven't comes in the winter it's a Asian species it takes two years before I get any mushrooms wow yeah. yeah well higher entry to barrier for other people wanting to do it then yeah, too yeah. how many of what you're growing are more on the medicinal side like people would all, are looking to purchase them for yeah. health versus mm -hmm. culinary and food the, the major ones I grow that are just medicinal without eating them, mm -hmm. making them into teas and tinctures are the reishis and the turkey tail. Yeah. Uh, and then oysters, I don't know, I can't know, you know, it's better for you than probably eating, you know, beef every day. I know you grew up beef. I grew up on a cattle farm. Them's fighting words. <laughs> you want to mix it up. I, I do, yeah. I, 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 so, Variety you know, spice. They, I, I, we, I, I eat it all. I'm an omnivore, but uh, yeah. But if 
that's probably not got a lot of medicinal value. But then I've got lion's mane, and that is a, it has a little bit of a, oh, it's a little bit psychoactive. It makes yeah. you literally happy. Right. From eating the mushroom. That's my kind of food. Yeah, so that's 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 one of my most popular ones. Sure. The lion's mane, but it's also one of the hardest ones to go. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, let's uh, let's look at some of these bad boys. Okay. Are you ready to? Yeah. Go. Lion's mane has great cognitive cognitive benefits. This that's great stuff. Yeah, it, like depending on how much you take of it, though, you know, maybe like a dose normally would be about five hundred milligrams, like mm -hmm. a half a gram. Oh, okay. And that would. It gives you, like you said, happy, euphoric. Uh, mm -hmm. It gives you energy. It mm -hmm. also mm -hmm. helps you uh, stay mentally focused. Yeah. Yeah, it's just people use it as, now they call it like uh, nootropics, I guess, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I, I take it all the time. I, I've i never taken it medicinally. Yeah. But, and I, like I said, I, I'm off and on growing it, but yeah. I have... Last I, last year, I found one that weighed five pounds out in the woods. Ooh, wow! You know? And so, I mean, I, there's individual mushrooms. I've I've by the time I've sold it, you know, get yeah. 150 dollars for a mushroom. Yeah, that's gotta feel yeah. good. Yeah, that that makes <laughs> like a lion's mane mushroom. Yeah. Um, cut it up, oh. put it in some butter. Oh gosh. On the frying pan. Yeah. And it ha yeah. it's almost like it would be like a seafood in a way. It has like a like if you were to cut a lobster, it kind of. That's, that's another like. name for it is the lobster mushroom. It's yeah. got the taste and texture of yeah. lobster when you do yeah. it like that. Yeah. It's amazing. How many, how many totems do you have out here? Roughly. So I'm gonna do a thousand uh, logs and totems um, this year. And there's a technical difference. Well, the log kind of this will be the long and, and small diameter that I'll okay. be drilling fill. And these we were setting on yeah. totems, which are the larger diameter that I cut through and I make a pancake of mycelia in between each layer. I wrap it in a bag for a certain amount of time and then we open. We can open some up and see if there's mycelia. Okay. There's some of these are do, but I I do I'm gonna do about a thousand logs. There's probably I just roughly estimating 2,500 out here right now yeah and this so this is as much as i can do and, and teach full time yeah I, well, shoot when you retire we're expecting this to quadruple to keep on going <laughs> and you were saying yeah. earlier uh -huh. um, that certain mushrooms like certain tree varieties that's right, that's right. Is, uh -huh. is there also something to be said for how you're layering the trees amongst themselves so to speak or congregating them yes these yellow so flies. So, when we look at these, uh, you, the, one of the questions you have, do they grow in the soil, or do they grow just in the wood? Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of wild mushrooms in the soil that I don't want in my logs. If I put them in direct contact with the soil, it literally comes up through the soil, like that yeah. honey mushroom did last year, and starts eating my logs much quicker. Okay. Now, so... By and large, what you're going to see is my, my totems and my logs setting on either plastic or r eastern red cedar slabs. When I'm sawing yeah. up cedar at the mill, I save the slabs and I bring out here so that they're not in direct contact with the soil. Gotcha. And then the other thing is the closer you are to the soil, your humidity is a little higher. They, they want it, they want a good, not too dry. That's the main okay. part. We haven't had rain for almost, I don't know, two weeks here. Yeah. And everything's getting dry, but 
as close if you're closer to the soil it's a little bit a little bit more moist they don't dry out as bad yeah. okay mm -hmm. what's the uh, little like white fingers coming out this of is a, this is a wild mushroom called xylaria it's a really neat looking thing and it's it's not doing me uh, i'm sure it's not doing me any good it might not be doing me any harm but it's a but it's certainly the, there's certainly a lot of it out here and uh i don't know what you can do with xylaria unfortunately it just is huh yeah it's just there yeah we've got these are the tropical and oysters Chlorotus, i believe citrupanelius when are they ready uh, these are ready right here okay this one there's nothing wrong with it but i should have harvested it yesterday there's some doggone i got some little insects that come in them they don't cause too much problem but these if it if we were if it started raining mm -hmm. that little clump of mushrooms would would go to you know this size within a few less than a day oh shoot they go really quick and uh but in this dry um, not humid environment, arid environment, it takes them a little longer to grow. When it's raining, they they, they just like, seem like they just appear out of nowhere. And what was this variety again? This one is the a tropical oyster, golden oyster. Okay, and is that like, that's just a solid one to get? We're making steak I like, and mushrooms, we want one of some yeah, of these? I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I like to just saute these and butter and olive oil. I made venison chili today, I stuffed Ooh. a bunch of it in there. I like to put my mushrooms in there. Uh, and it likes these soft woods. That's a that's tulip poplar right there. It's growing on, and some of them are growing on uh, elms, and some of them are growing on willows right there. Are those all indigenous to the area? Yeah. Those types of trees. Mm -hmm. That's right. I did not ask you this. When did when did the mushroom popularity boom kick it, kick up? When did about, this all happen? About two thousand years ago in China and Japan. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff is, they were growing shiitake. There were yeah. drawings, literally, from 2,000 years ago and descriptions Damn. of them growing this. And it, but it's really, like, it's really something that's more or less, I know, I remember 30 years ago, 35 yeah. years ago in high school, people talking about growing shiitake. So I guess it was out there. Okay. It's been around for a while, but it's definitely interest is picking up you know yeah like i said i'm i'm a i'm an 11 year vendor at the palafox market right. in Pensacola, and i get a lot of people coming from mushrooms i introduce a lot of people to mushrooms yeah but increasingly people know what they are when i mention i've got rishi in there right yeah. do, do they just know like three or four or five varieties but the other when well, you're like well, i got 20 yeah. they're like i don't know <clears throat> a lot of them <clears throat> most people are like that okay they, say, I, they know a button mushroom and a portobello yeah and, maybe and i don't grow either of them do you do chanterelles can you oh, i had you can't no i've or? got chanterelles in my fridge but i went out and forged you have to forge yeah, them. i don't know how to grow those okay but, yeah and i had them from last i harvested those last uh monday because we had a bunch of rain the week before but and you know where to go yeah yeah there's lots of chanterelles out here well if mm -hmm. if you blindfold me and take me into one of your foraging spots will you show me how to forage for mushrooms we can go we can go look yeah it's dry yeah so we probably we might not find much but i can i can go show you yeah we can go from here and, and take a look at a, oh, okay. a spot out in the woods yeah I, so you so at least you can see the environment yeah even if they're not there but we'll find a few i got you but then you get a feel for what habitat 
They're like <clears throat> primarily hardwoods. Mm -hmm. In fact, any mixed pine hardwoods, very rarely in pure pine stands around here. What is dictating <clears throat> the price of mushrooms? I mean, okay, mm -hmm. some of it might be rarity, but when mm -hmm. you're making strains no one's heard about, mm -hmm. does that automatically mean they're worth more or worth less because they don't know about them? Or Eat. if it's a buzzword, yeah. they'll pay more for it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, a little bit of all of above. Uh, we talked about lion's mane just yep. briefly. You know, it, it's just a great mushroom. I'm typically the only person selling that I know of in Pensacola, all right? Mm -hmm. And, or for that matter, Covenant County. Uh, there are people out, there are a few people out there harvesting. I've done so many classes yeah. that I've, there are, there's a hundred, 200 people in the area around here that are now go out and harvest for themselves. They've, I've taught them how to do sure. that. And so there's some of them like Lion's Mane, yes. You know, we, I, I find a good lion's mane out in the woods. I'm going to get $150 out of that mushroom. Um, these I sell by the pint for $5 a pint at the, at the market or $9 oh, okay. a quart. And um, if we get into the fall and it's really good conditions, I'm, I'm harvesting 20 pounds a day or so out here or something like that. Oh, all right. And yeah. uh, get into a good patch of chanterelles. You know, I just pick for hours and hours at a time in one little area and it's a lot of, a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. Does it ever get where you run into other foragers and it, it gets... You know, that's uh, going to happen out west. It's a big deal. Yeah. You know, people shoot each other over well, the Well, I grew up in Montana and huckleberry picking is like that. And yeah. they, you say you got to watch out for the yeah. bears and the other pickers. Yeah, I... Equally I, dangerous. Well, I... I Because I... My history is basically education. Yeah. I... I just take it as a given. I did find one of my chanterelle patches last Sunday. I found somebody had dropped a knife in there, and the, the, the chanterelles were gone, and they had dropped their foraging knife. So uh -oh. somebody I taught <laughs> is out working my patches. Did you keep that as an artifact? <laughs> I got the knife inside. It's nice knife, I guess. But uh, yeah, it, it's starting to happen, but pretty rarely. Yeah. Pretty rarely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see if we can find another. Want to uh, see some of the rishis? Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we got some real pretty rishi. When you when you first got into mushrooms out here, how big was your setup? Um, the first year, I did. I think I probably did about sixty logs. Oh, we've really grown then. Yeah. Uh, so over here, well, we got a red rishi over here. This is like this is my first year growing the black rishi. All right. So. And so I got this mycelia from Fungi Farm here in, uh, in Alabama. Mm -hmm. They're a relatively new producer of mycelia and they're, they're really reasonably priced. And so I, I was getting my, my mycelia from him and he said, do you want to try this black rishi? I said, sure. But he didn't even know what woods I needed to put it on. Most of my rishis I grow on oaks, cracker yeah. species. I took and stuck this on a bunch of different woods. This is there's a fungus beetle that just eats fungus. Yeah. You see them around the rishi. The yeah, the, the stripe. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I the only I never saw him them at all until I started going black rishi. They really like it. Apparently. Are they a, a pest? Or I haven't they... noticed. I don't know what they're doing because they're not <laughs> they're not putting holes in my logs. But but they're all over the black rishi. But these rishis the strongest smelling mushroom too man when you harvest them you, really uh, they'll drive you out of the car almost bad smell it's strong, it's strong. <laughs> but uh so you got to dry them down but uh i'm man it's it's a really productive rishi ganoderma species 
and it's working on several things besides oats. So you're making these cuts, you're scoring the logs. Yeah. Is that just accelerating the process? Because obviously Mother Nature's not cutting them for, for the well, mushroom yeah, exactly. to get in. So think of the bark on the tree is like is equivalent to skin on us. It protects us from viruses sure. and bacteria. So to if you was to just throw it on there, it, it's gonna have a hard time penetrating that. So that's what I'm doing is I'm exposing the the wood yeah the interior of the tree and uh and giving put my mycelium in there so that i'll colonize it yeah and then over here was the uh the red rishi and we and i've wild forage a lot of rishi around here but this is i don't remember if this is the european strain which is ganoderma lucidum or our native one is mainly ganoderma curtisi out here but um this one is ready to harvest um, all of this is oak that's okay. going on, and and pretty much that's all I find it growing on out in the woods around here is off the stumps of recently dead or cut oak trees in the roots. You'll start seeing it coming up off the ground. Again, it's saprophytic. That means it eats dead dead stuff. Right. And it, maintaining that yeah. balance. That whole row is a shiitake, and you're not going to see anything. Okay. Because the shiitake want those cool nights in the fall gotcha uh, so i probably i i start seeing some production in around here in lower alabama about october and in november through march is my my main time frame on shiitake so throughout the area you've got a steady harvest of yeah, something that, if you if you just did shiitake you'd only be a, a winter producer basically huh. if you just did golden oysters you'd just be a summer producer so i i'm doing yeah 15 different strains and species so that I can go year around to the market. Once you inoculate them and you kind of get it all set up, how much input do you have on their success from that point on? Once uh, it, they're out there, um, the main things I'm doing um, is if we go into a long drought, I'll start moving sprinklers around yeah. here and watering every few days. If it, let's say it goes, it's been about two weeks now without rain, I'm, I'm gonna start running sprinklers until we get a rain. Yeah. Um, there's a best beetle, there's that big beetle that was eating mm -hmm. my logs, we could take a look at that. Yeah. I, I ignored those for a few years and pretty soon I was losing my logs. They were just eating everything. So you have to, stay on top of some of these insect pests in this case is the best beetles where they're just gonna your your log is just gonna disappear this right here right this sawdust tells me there's a best beetle inside that river birch or it was in there sure yeah and it this is that's what they do to it do they tend to like um all the logs you got out here there he is right there yes the dog on these dog on best beetles ah he burrowed down in there. Right, he was right in there. They just they honeycomb the log. I can only only rip in so yeah. far. Yeah, you can see. So that's what he's the, gone. The uh, the pileated woodpeckers come in here after those, and they'll just turn that into a pile of light. There he goes. There, there he is. is. There he is. He's coming out. Hey there. All right, that's him. Say his name again for the B E S S best beetle. Best beetle. And let's see if he'll make. Sometimes you can hear them. They'll make a noise when you grab them. Not all of them. 
He's not doing it, is he? He did the very first time you squeezed him, and that was it. He's a dirty little guy. Yeah. Honey, I shrunk the kids. I won't want to be against him. You want to eat that, honey? No. The, the best beetle challenge? Maybe <laughs> on the next episode. Is that nutritious? You know, I've eaten, I have, because I'm kind of a survivalist, I've eaten larvae before, but I, I couldn't eat them raw because I wasn't that hungry. So yeah. I, I just, uh, I sauteed them in butter and garlic salt, and they were fine. Yeah. But I, a beetle would be, I would have to be really hungry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not there yet. I got a power bar in the car. <laughs> comes out in prodigious numbers, generally right after rain. I don't know why this one came out. Oh yeah, they've already faded. So they were here this morning, and they've already, and they oh. just, they like, if I was to run the sprinklers, they might, a whole bunch of new ones, just, there, there might be a thousand little mushroom caps on that log. It's something you want to harvest, or they're just? Yeah, they, well, they, they're just real, what you'd call ephemeral. Yeah. So you, if you put them in direct sunlight, they're gone within minutes. So you got to harvest them and then put them in a, I put them in herb containers, I put them in the fridge. Oh. And some of my people really like them. That's a lot of work for how small they yeah, are. Yeah, so they're like the I'm, microgreen of I'm mushrooms. A, yeah, exactly. I'm gonna charge, you know, five dollars for an ounce of those guys or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But uh, are there any other varieties that are fruiting now that we haven't seen? I think. We've got the t the two reishi species. Did you did I sh did we did look at yeah we looked at the red reishi and the black reishi. We've got the golden oyster. There is one little clump of a summer white oyster over there. It's kind of faded out. We could look at yet. Okay. And but that's like that's I said, it for that's for it for June. right now. Yeah. The come August. My Italian oysters will, will start showing. Come September, a bunch of others, the blue dolphins and oh. and these will come, and then then the shiitake, and then in the lion's mane will be start scattering in there. Cone yeah. tooth. Um, the dead of the winter is is my namekos. Okay. Uh, olive oysterling is a different species I grow here. I do real well with it. And, and all the time I'm wild foraging. Like right now I'm getting the chanterelles. Yeah. yeah. And those sell really well. Those do. Yeah. Yeah. I guess people think they're exotic. They, this is, you know, 99% of the population is, doesn't know what they are <laughs> and, and, and have been around them their whole life. have probably seen them a thousand times and just, it was just a mushroom. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, but by going to the same market, for 11 years, I can bring anything in, and I just and people know me and trust me. Right. And uh, so I I took one that I've only I've never taken to the market before called uh, Lactarius indigo. Ooh. It's a the indigo, oh, the gorgeous blue, just blue mushroom. And I took those uh, the week before last, and people would would trust me yeah. that I wasn't giving them poisonous mushroom because I, I know my mushrooms. So that was a question I had. For someone yeah. that's going out foraging, yeah. are there like, Mark's three easy tips of how not to pick the wrong mushroom. Like do the poisonous ones all have a certain attribute or something to identify? Mm, no, I, it's, it's not that easy, but okay. what, what you, you want to do, if you want to avail yourself of the internet, Yep. We got so many tools now I didn't have when I was a kid. And 
I joined, for instance, the Alabama Mushroom Society online. Sure. And uh, and so I'm still learning. There's thousands of species out there. If I question, if I don't know what it is, or uh, or I'm not sure, I'll, I'll post a picture of the cap, cap yep. and the underside, the gills of the pores and the stem and the environment. And I'll post it up and say, hey, what's this? And generally, immediately, I have confirmation from some of the best mushroom experts out there. They'll say yeah. this is A, B, or C. Okay. And so join those free mushroom societies and, yeah. and, and post your pictures uh, and learn. There are, that's in my classes, what I teach them are mushrooms that are not easily confused or mixed up with highly toxic mushrooms. Okay. So the, um, the chanterelle, potentially you could mix it up with the jack-o'-lantern. And that would be a bad thing. It would not kill you. It wouldn't lose yeah. your liver like you do with the destroying angel or something like lose that. Lose your liver like it disintegrates you? Pretty or? much, mm-hmm. yeah. The, 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 the bad amanitas, will, you just, your inter- internal organs go away pretty much. So that's why they, you don't go out and start with white caps. There's a lot of good edible white cap mushrooms that grow from soil, but some of them are the amanitas. So you, you don't start there. That's okay. several years or, or experience <laughs> on the white cap soil uh, mushrooms that grow from the soil. You start with uh, wood ear. It looks like a ear and it grows off a tree and there's, the, there's ones you can mix it up with, but they're not poisonous. They're just other edibles. Gotcha. And puffballs. You get a big old puffball that's solid and it's white inside. There's nothing, nothing else like that. Yeah. It, it's gonna. There's no poisonous mimics. And that one's pretty good, or yeah, is it, it's is it a mediocre good. mushroom? It's, 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 I like it. It's, What's it's, the low grade mushroom? What's the one that are like ah, we'll pass over this one for? Well, the. Uh, the lactarius indigo <laughs> to the market two weeks ago. <laughs> to me, it was too. It tastes like dirt to well, me. We won't tell but, them. But, that. Yeah. I told. I, but there. That's that's the difference in in flavors. All right. So some people like a super strong mushroom. Yeah. Like, uh, like the lactarius. That real entire genus. Earthy. Yeah, flavor. real earthy. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, it's just overpowering to me and other people. Yeah, my son, my my late son. Yeah. Uh, that was one of his favorites. Really? Yeah. And uh, so, uh, and it's, I like wild duck. A lot of people can't t- tolerate the, the, the intensity of the of flavor. Duck. Yeah. But that's, that's, so, so these mushrooms are like that. You find some that I like or don't like, but the lactarius is not my cup of tea. But if they buy it, then. Yeah, yeah. I more, tell them, I, I let them. I have people who have that entire palette out there. Okay, yeah. so it sounds like if someone wants to go foraging, they should look for the, the wood ear. The wood ear, the puffballs, I'll teach them the chanterelles, and how to make sure it's not a, uh, the jack-o'-lantern. Right? Yeah, Which is the one that dissolver. It looks kind of, it's, it's, it, they're similar enough that you can make that mistake, but you can learn certain rules to, to, to eliminate that possibility. Okay. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with those. But the turkey tail is yeah. medicinal. Yeah. All right. There's a lot of stuff that you could mix it up with, and none of them are gonna hurt you. Sure. The the rishis. I don't think I don't know anything. You're gonna mix them up too much. They but there, but there's nothing toxic that you're gonna mix it up with. You okay. Know, you know. What would be if there was one thing you wanted people to know about mushrooms that that we that we don't like? What's the what's Mark's takeaway on on mushrooms? Ooh, what's Mark's takeaway on mushrooms? Uh, are they well, sentient beans? Are they what? Sentient beans. Sentient beans. With the 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 newest research, 
it's, it's just fascinating. It's almost beyond what you can imagine, but mm -hmm. they actually help trees communicate. Okay. All right, the mycelia, uh, the long, all these trees, everything we see around us would not be alive without mushrooms. The, all of the pines have symbiotic fungi that, uh, that grow in the soil that pick up the nutrients and give it to the tree in exchange for the tree giving it carbohydrates and stuff back. So they're, sure. they're compu you know, mutually beneficial. And without those mushrooms, these trees, these, this hickory, literally could not grow. They could not get their, their stuff from the soil. So they're, they're absolutely critical to life on earth would end without yeah. the, the kingdom of mushrooms. Is, is, do you think there's as much of a threat like what man did to the the pines as there is to man affecting mushrooms or are they kind of like they're going to outwit us and outsmart us regardless of, of what we do or they're going to be here way after we're gone yeah, yeah. and laughing at what we yeah. tried <laughs> yeah uh, what it was the uh, I, I, there was one science fiction book i can't remember but there were sentient movable mushrooms that dominated one planet <laughs> that like would to, happen I i'd think like it, to read that book yeah uh, well, Mark, this has been a real treat. Thanks for having us out here. Uh, uh, I'm thinking I'm going to maybe try to go foraging for something that won't destroy my liver. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely want to come back maybe in a different part of the season or uh, so we can walk around in the woods or something, but I, I appreciate it. Oh, man, it, it was fun. Yeah. I really appreciate it, guys. If you would like to support these endeavors, please visit either of our websites. My company and products for The Caveman are sold through my own, thecavemanscupboard.com. That's spelled T-H-E-C-A-V-E-M-A-N-S-C-U-P-B-O-A-R-D.com. And all of our wonderful grass-finished Parthenay beef, marbled Wagyu beef, and pastured Berkshire pork products can be found on our farm website, arrowheadbeef.com. All social media can be found on the major platforms, Facebook and Instagram, at The Caveman's Cupboard, and the YouTube channel, The Caveman Channel. And if you get your jollies from our content, please subscribe and follow along. Cheers. Cheers.